Well, I've known Pastor Ryan for, for quite a while, and I, I made the assumption that it may be a prerequisite to have a, a big beard to preach here. And so when he asked me to, to fill the pulpit July 1st, I began growing it as quickly as I could. And I hope this suffices and you would welcome me. But as David said, I am the director of discipleship at Reality Sports. We are a local sports ministry that, that does team and training for the purpose of preaching the gospel and making disciples and partnering with churches to do that. In fact, my relationship with the Redemption Bible Church began a number of years ago as Pastor Ryan reached out to us to collaborate and talk sports ministry as your church was partnering with Northwest Sports Outreach. We are huge fans of using sport as a mode or medium or context to preach the gospel and to make disciples. And so we love that you guys are doing that in your community. I learned one of the most profound examples of using sport for evangelism and discipleship a number of years ago as the Lord led me to build a relationship with a young man named Matt. Matt began training with us at Reality Sports his seventh grade year. And, and though he worked hard and he attended all of our wrestling training, he would often skip out on the gospel as we would open the word at the end of every practice. Matt's testimony and, and story was pretty common. He wanted to come for our wrestling training, but he had no real desire to know or grow in the things of God. In fact, for Matt, God was a non-factor. He grew up in an unbelieving home, and as far as Matt was concerned, he was the king of his domain. Wrestling, winning, and self-glory were what Matt chased after, what he worshipped and what was king in his life. My testimony would be quite similar. For 21 years of my life, I fought to be the king of my world. I thought the idea of a creator God, not to mention a God who is living and active in the world today, was laughable. For me, wrestling, winning, and self-glory were also everything I chased after, everything I worshipped, and it was my king. And I imagine that if we're all honest, each of us would say that at some point in our journey, we wrestled with who the sovereign king of our life was. Now, it might not have manifested itself in idolatry of sport or success, but nonetheless, each of us fights for the throne of our hearts, don't we? Each of us, in and of ourselves, reject God's kingdom and pursue our own throne. It began at the fall. Instantly, in a moment, a second kingdom came into existence. Everything Adam and Eve had ever known revolved around God and his being the sovereign king. And then with one bite, one believed lie, both were pursuing their own throne. And it's been that same way ever since. Adam and Eve had exchanged the awe of God for the awe of self. In fact, Luke says in the book of Acts that the upside-down nature of the gospel is that it proclaims there is only one true king, and his name is Jesus. Our vision statement at Reality Sports is to turn the world upside down through sport because we believe in that upside-down, transformative power of the gospel. Our call is to go into the culture of sport and proclaim that basketball and baseball and football and wrestling, they aren't king. Jesus is. When God allows that truth to sink in, it restores our awe to the right place. 
and he gives the gift of faith, that happens and our lives are changed and we begin to live in light of that enthroned king. And that's precisely what I want to look at with you today. The eternal enthronement of King Jesus. My prayer is that as we join together to worship God, to to hear his word, that we would see and hear what I believe to be the greatest news in the whole world. The proclamation of a savior enthroned on high. And that as you recognize he came to the world on a rescue mission, you would place your trust in him and that your awe might be reawakened this morning. And it would cause you to submit to him as that king in every area of your life. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Awe-Inspiring Coronation of a Supremely Sovereign King. Because I hope that as we reflect on the truth of God's word, it would stir up in us a fresh, powerful awe at what God is like and how he works in our world. See, the truth is, I came to the understanding a long time ago that I'm not the king of my life. And that there is indeed a sovereign king, that he's been enthroned over the universe, but I also know that in this life, I have to constantly remind myself of that truth and apply it to my daily situation. See, I recognize that I am one of the most forgetful people in the world when it comes to the gospel. I don't think it's just me either. Have you ever noticed how often the authors of scripture say things like, remember, don't forget, be reminded? We're a forgetful people. And so my aim this morning is to remind us And help us reawaken the awe of a king who came to rescue the world. I want our awe to be reawakened this morning by looking at the awe-inspiring coronation of a supremely sovereign king. Because here's the truth, and it's too good to wait 40 more minutes. I have to tell you now, there is one who is worthy of our awe. Who is fully in charge who is in control and reigns as a supremely sovereign king. And the good news is he's patient and he's good and he's kind and he's fair and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's just. And we're going to soak in that truth this morning. We're going to bathe in the goodness and the weight of that. And we're going to let that awaken our awe. Does that sound okay? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope that you do. Would you please turn them to to Psalm 2. And as you're turning there, I'd like to pray for our time together. Father, we praise you. We praise you that we get to gather as a local expression of your body. God, I thank you for this fellowship of saints. That they have given their lives to the king. That they have said to the king, do with me as you wish. Send me where you will. Have me be on mission. And so, God, I pray that this morning as we open your word, your spirit would move among us in a way that would, that would reawaken that call, that would be a charge to go on mission, that would be an encouragement and an empowering to say, I want to live for the king. Hear our prayers, O Lord. Be glorified and honored, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Psalm 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 2 is what biblical scholars call a royal or kingly psalm. As it was written by King David to be read as a coronation at the enthronement of a new king in Jerusalem. For us living outside of a monarchy... With limited understanding to the events of royalty, this would be akin to the inauguration of the President of the United States. At that ceremony, the President-elect recites the presidential oath of office, a ritual that would be very similar to what we read here in Psalm 2. The coronation would be read before the people of Israel from the temple atop Mount Zion. And as we know of our biblical history... God made a covenant with King David, declaring that a son of David would always sit on the throne of Jerusalem. And it's this covenantal promise of God that would make a coronation such as this a national treasure for the nation of Israel. As we listen to the the reading of this coronation, we we can see and hear how it would celebrate and honor God in light of a new Davidic king being established before the nation of Israel. David begins the psalm with the question, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? A transition in power would surely elicit the response of neighboring vassal kings and peoples looking for an opportunity to overthrow the nation. David recognizes this vulnerability and yet also makes clear that when the nations want to overthrow God's king, they are essentially saying they want to overthrow God himself. The Davidic king was promised an earthly rule, one in which the promise to Abraham would come to fruition, that through this nation, led by this king, all the earth would be blessed. We read in the coronation that God promises such a vast kingdom to the Davidic king as the nations are promised as his heritage, and the ends of the earth are promised as his possession. And so... David would end the coronation with a call to submit to the king of Israel and pledge their allegiance to him that they might know the peace that's promised to Israel. This was an evangelistic call from David. Know and honor our king so that you might know and honor our God. 
But for anyone who has read the Old Testament, we know that wasn't quite how things played out, was it? The nation of Israel failed in their call to be the priesthood to all nations. They failed in allowing the nations to see and experience the one true God through their obedience and allegiance to him. We know that after Solomon, the kingdom was divided, and eventually the throne was overthrown. But for us to fully understand Psalm 2 this morning, we have to recognize that this psalm is also a messianic psalm, meaning it's been understood to not only speak of the coronation of Israel's earthly king, but that it would one day speak of the enthronement and the coronation of Israel's divine king the true anointed one, Jesus Christ. So as we read Psalm 2, we have to also recognize the deeper, eternal interpretation of it. I want to suggest this morning that as we see the future fulfillment of Psalm 2, our awe of the goodness and sovereignty of the king will be awakened. Psalm 2 should be viewed as a four-act play, each with a a change of setting and characters. Act 1 takes place in a court full of kings and peoples. And this morning we're going to call this Act 1 the fight for sovereignty. Then in Act 2 the setting shifts to heaven where Yahweh speaks. We're going to call this Act 2 the the promise of sovereignty. Act 3 moves to the top of Mount Zion, the holy mountain where the king speaks and gives his edict. We're going to call this Act 3, the enthronement of sovereignty. And then finally, the closing act brings us to the desk of King David, all by himself, speaking to the kings and peoples of Act 1, and we'll call this final act of the play Act 4, the right response to sovereignty. Four acts making up one divine drama, all pointing to the coronation of the supremely sovereign king. So here we go. Act one, the fight for sovereignty. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Act one takes us into an international court with the leaders and rulers of the world raging and plotting. They've set themselves up and taken counsel Against who? Says the Lord and his anointed. The rulers and leaders are devising a plan against Yahweh, the one true God of the universe and his anointed. The Hebrew word for Messiah. These worldly powers are committing intentional acts of rebellion, devious methods of defiance, and every single one of them is aimed at God and his anointed. And so we must ask, for what reason? Are they raging and plotting? Verse 3 tells us so that they might burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. As we read that, our, our mind's eye may go to this idea that the Lord and his anointed have these kings and rulers and bonds and cords as if they're prisoners. Though that's not the best understanding of these words. As you study the commentaries and and you read guys who know more Hebrew than than we do, they say the proper way to envision these words are actually to, to see these earthly kings and rulers under a yoke. What that means is the nations and people are not raging and plotting against the Lord and his anointed because they are prisoners and bonds, but rather because they have an owner 
See, a yoke is something a farmer would put on a cow or an ox that he owned to control it and to direct it. The truth is the rulers of the world are in a bitter fight for sovereignty because they recognize that there is a supremely sovereign king who owns them and is in control. And the nature of every subservient king is rebellion against such unwanted external control. We could summarize the rebellion in the first three verses by recognizing as the idolatry of self-sovereignty. The idolatry or worship of self-sovereignty. And I have to make a point here that's very important. As we read about the nations and the peoples and the kings of the earth and the rulers, we can't limit that audience to those who wear gold crowns and are overseeing nations and governments. See, the truth is, every single one of us suffers from the idolatry of self-sovereignty. Every one of us has a part of our heart that hates the supreme sovereignty of the Lord and his anointed. In our sinful nature, in the nature that we are born with, apart from the forgiveness and purifying of God, we hate, we despise, and we plot against any sovereign authority that is over us and tells us how to live And what to do. The human heart does not want to give up its sinful position as king. That was true of my testimony. That was true of Matt's testimony. And it's true of every single one of our testimonies. In our sin, when it comes to the sovereignty of God and his ownership over us, we hate it. We rebel against it. And we act just like these rulers we're reading about in Act 1. And yet as we keep walking through this psalm, we will see that the supremely sovereign king is patient and good and a kind owner. And he invites us to himself despite our fight for self-sovereignty. We're going to see as we keep studying this morning to to come to the the throne of Jesus and receive his grace is a free gift. There takes a continual understanding and confession that we hate the sovereignty of the king. See, if I don't daily unite my heart to his spirit and say, allow me, Lord, to submit myself to the sovereignty of your kingdom today in everything that I do, in everything that I say, in everything that I think, I'm going to begin to take court just as the rulers of the world do here in Psalm 2. I will end up in a fight for my own supreme sovereignty. This is the message we proclaim to our athletes, parents, and coaches day in and day out. We have to fight the urge to rule as our own sovereign kings in sport and in life. And yet despite This fight for sovereignty, we see in verse 1 that this raging and this plotting and this devising, it's all in vain. Last year, I was leading a a discipleship group with some of the students that we were leading at, at our church, and we were studying and memorizing the New City Catechism. And the ultimate truth of the whole entire Bible as it relates to the supreme sovereignty of the king is summed up in question one of that catechism. The question reads, what is our only hope in life and death? The answer, those students would tell us that we are not our own, but belong body and soul 
both in life and death, to God and his anointed one, our Savior, Jesus Christ. George MacDonald, the Scottish author that was said to have influenced C.S. Lewis more than any other author, says that the one common conviction of everyone in hell is, I am my own. Every single person that lives their life apart from God shares the one same conviction. I am my own. And don't we see that in our culture today? I know it's rampant in the sports culture, and I'm sure you would say the same thing in whichever context you find yourself in. But the scriptures teach an entirely different reality, don't they? Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As creator, God is also owner. Romans 14, 7 and 8 says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And then finally, Paul makes it explicitly clear in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. As we can see, the scriptures explicitly teach against any sort of personal autonomy or self-sovereignty. Now I'm talking to everyone this morning, but young people in the room, I'd like you to listen to me especially close here. The world around you is saying and will only continue to say to you louder and louder that you are your own person and that you're free to do whatever you want and that you don't have to submit to anyone. See, you're going to be encouraged to start your own business and to work for yourself so you don't have to take orders from anyone. You're going to be told that you can do anything you want with your body because it's yours and no one has any say over you and your body. But listen to me. You must hear this. That is one of the greatest lies the world has ever told. Every single one of you, of us, is not our own, but was made by God for God. And all of the fighting we could ever do against that sovereignty and his anointed is in vain. To understand why this fight for sovereignty is in vain, we need to continue through this divine drama. Act one was the fight for sovereignty. The fight for sovereignty. Act two, we're going to call the promise of sovereignty. It's the promise of sovereignty. Act two switches settings from the earthly court holding the world's kings to the heavenly court where Yahweh himself sits. As Act 2 opens, we wonder, what will be the response of this heavenly divine character as the world's rulers and kings rage against him? Are we going to find Yahweh worrying, fearing, anxious? Are we going to find God pacing back and forth, nervously wondering what might come of such plotting and planning to overthrow the sovereignty of the Lord and his anointed. Let's keep reading verses four through six. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How does Yahweh respond? He laughs. He laughs. He says he holds them in derision. That means he laughs and makes a mockery of them. See, for the Lord in heaven, there is a comedic quality to the audacity of such a fight for sovereignty. For God, this is laugh-worthy because of how vain the plot really is. I've heard a pastor named Art Azurdia from Portland, Oregon, illustrate our point in this psalm this way, and I think it's really, really helpful. You're familiar with the book Gulliver's Travels. Lemuel Gulliver was a captain of a, a mighty ship, and on one adventure, Gulliver gets shipwrecked on the island of Lilliput. You remember the story? Or at least the Hollywood spinoff with Jack Black. <laughs> Anyways, Gulliver's ship is wrecked on the beach of Lilliput. He's knocked unconscious and finally awakens, tied to the ground by the locks of his hair. As Gulliver's tied down, tiny little Lilliputians begin putting up ladders around his body and climbing onto his chest. These little people, barely bigger than one of his fingers, construct a cart to take Gulliver to the capital of Lilliput to see the ever-feared Lilliputian king. This king, again, barely bigger than the finger of Lemuel Gulliver, begins barking out orders and mistreating Gulliver in such a way that completely disregards the fact that with one swipe of his hand, he could completely obliterate the entire Lilliputian empire. And yet here we have a king, because he is only slightly bigger than the rest of the Lilliputians, believes he is the biggest, baddest thing in all the land. And if we're wise this morning, we would see the utter insanity of that story. I hope we also see this morning that our fight for sovereignty, our raging against the Lord and his anointed, is as crazy as the little Lilliputian king pointing his little finger in the chest of Sir Gulliver. And what is God's response to such a vain attempt at autonomy? He laughs and he mocks because he knows the audacity of such a fruitless attempt to gain self-sovereignty. The God who sits in the heavens is being contrasted with the tiny little Lilliputian-like kings of the earth, and he laughs. Did you know that the Bible mentions a number of times God laughing? It does, and what's, what's even more interesting is that every time it is said of God that he laughs, it's in response to the wicked seeking the idolatry of self-sovereignty. Listen to a couple examples. Psalm 37 the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Proverbs 1. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and they would have none of my reproof, I, will also, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. See, the sovereign Lord says, I am giving myself to you. And in your fight for self-sovereignty, you reject. There will come a day I'm going to laugh. Yahweh sits in the heavens and laughs. 
And then it says his laughing turns into action. It says he speaks to them in his wrath or anger, and he terrifies them in his fury. The Lord, enthroned in heaven, begins to speak to these kings and peoples through words and acts, brought about by his anger that is meant to, to terrify them and have them take notice of their idolatry of self-sovereignty. The words for wrath and, and fury in the Bible carry with them this notion of, of jealousy. That's exactly how we should understand it here. Yahweh, the, the Lord, who is seated in the heavens, is a jealous God, meaning he, meaning he, he cares so deeply for his people that when, when we pursue other gods and we seek to sit under our own self-sovereignty, rather than recognizing him as our supremely sovereign king, he gets jealous and angry and seeks to shake us awake so that we might see that he alone is deserving of our worship and our allegiance. The Lord desires through his action to shake his people awake, to have them take notice at how ludicrous it is to fight against his sovereignty and to honor him as the only true sovereign Lord of the world. It's this wrath and, and fury that causes him to say, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. As for me is what we call the emphatic I, meaning God is emphasizing his action towards and against the actions of the rulers of the world. They seek to rage and plot, to be sovereign kings, but God says, as for me, I am in placing my own king to rule the world. He puts those things against one another. And this is so massively important to remember as we look out around our culture and our world and, and see uncontrolled chaos. I don't know about you, but, but the craziness of our cultural moment we find ourselves in tests this notion of sovereignty for me every day. See, if we, if we can't rest in the fact that there is a king over all kings and a lord over all the lords and a, a power over all the powers, then I'm afraid we could let the madness of such a cultural moment overtake us in fear. And isn't that what we're seeing happening all around us? But the beauty of the gospel is that there is a God who is sovereign over this whole thing and says that he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I think if we were to put a modern-day spin on Psalm 2, I think we could think of God as saying in the second act of this psalm, let the rulers of the world strut. Let the terrorists terrorize. Let nations jockey for nuclear power thinking that they are sovereign and in control. See, my king, he's on the earth. And no one can or will challenge his supreme sovereignty. Every king is under the rule and reign of my king. God says every lord is under the sovereignty and direction of my lord. Nothing in this world happens apart from the sovereign lord of the universe working it together for good according to his good and perfect will. The confidence and awe 
that ought to bring to the people of God, despite the chaos of what we see happening in the world around us, rests in God himself, who is unmoved by the happenings of little Lilliputians. I don't know about you, but I have to remind myself of that truth daily. I have to rest in that. I have to preach that to myself. Because it brings me comfort and peace and hope even in the madness of this cultural moment. I hope this is awakening our awe this morning. Amen? We're seeing Yahweh sitting in heaven, watching his creation fight for sovereignty, and the insanity of all of it causes him to laugh in derision. And yet what this is saying is that he graciously and lovingly involves himself in our world and establishes the Messiah as his king. Supreme sovereignty has been set in place by Yahweh setting in place his king. Listen to that again. Supreme sovereignty has been set in place by Yahweh entering into human history and setting in place his king. Therefore, we stand in awe recognizing the upside-down reality that just over 2,000 years ago, God set into motion the enthronement of the supremely sovereign king to save the world. This is the good news of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, was born in a manger to be enthroned as a king. And he came to invite his people into his kingdom, and he lays down his life for his people. The king lays down his life for the kingdom. It's an upside-down radical gospel that we believe in. And yet it's an upside-down radical gospel that we love. Act 2 was the promise of sovereignty. I hope this is making sense this morning. I hope that as, as we see God responding to the sinful fight for sovereignty by sending his king to engage in this world our awe is beginning to be stirred. Act three is what we're going to call the enthronement of sovereignty. The enthronement of sovereignty. Act three takes us to the very top of Mount Zion, to where the coronation service of the newly enthroned king would take place. And as the lights come up on our drama, we hear the voice of the anointed one himself. Verses seven through nine. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. First Chronicles chapter 17, starting in verse 11, we have what Bible scholars refer to as the Davidic covenant summarized. It says that, When our days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever." Now, as we mentioned earlier, what we know of Old Testament history is that we never see the Davidic covenant become fully realized. 
because after Solomon, there is never again a descendant of David on the throne of Israel. But what we have happening in Act 3 is the forward-looking interpretation of the Davidic covenant fully realized in the ascended Christ. From the top of Zion, the anointed one declares that Yahweh has set in place his king, and he has proclaimed that not only is he the sent Messiah, but that he is God's son. As we look forward to this future coronation, we see Jesus the Messiah now publicly declaring his relationship with Yahweh, alerting the kings of the earth in this anoint alerting the kings of the earth that this anointed one is no puppet of Yahweh, nor is he a usurper to the throne, but rather he is Yahweh's supremely sovereign son, fully deserving of the kingdom that he has inherited. The vastness of this kingdom is described in verse 8. The anointed one proclaims that at the moment of the coronation, the father declares he will make the nations his heritage and the ends of the earth will be his possession. That means that there is not a single place on the face of the earth that Yahweh's king does not reign. The scriptures call him the king of kings because every ruler's throne sits under the one enthroned over the face of the whole earth. And then in verse 9, the coronation ceremony concludes with this promise from Yahweh to his sent king. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Take in the drastic distinction of the materials mentioned in this promise. Jesus is said to rule with an iron scepter, smashing the pieces of fragile clay. What we can assume from a description like this is the fight for sovereignty we witnessed in Acts 1 wouldn't be too much of a fight at all. This promise is speaking to the end of days when the Lord's anointed, King Jesus, will begin judging all of those that have not bowed their knee to him as king. Revelation chapter 2 says, the one who conquers and who keeps my work until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is that futuristic look of the interpretation of Psalm 2. The rule of God's Messiah guarantees stability, even if brought about by force. But here's the good news this morning. And what I believe will continue to awaken our awe and have us stand in amazement of God's gracious plan to send his son to our world and serve as our king. When Jesus was sent to the world the first time, as a humble babe, he came as the Lord's anointed. He came as the Messiah. But what's so amazing about God's divine will is that this Messiah, this anointed one, came not to condemn the world, as John 3.17 says, but to save it. That means though he was anointed at his coming, God in his patience and his grace is withholding that rod of iron for a time, allowing all of those who are like sheep without a shepherd to come to him and find peace to submit to him as king, to enter into the kingdom of God by faith and know the peace that is promised of this kingdom.
at Jesus' first coming, he was indeed the anointed Messiah. But according to God's glorious plan of salvation, Jesus the Christ had to endure the cross before he could don his crown. Our Christ had to endure the cross to inherit his kingly crown. Upon his resurrection and ascension, Jesus took up his place at the right hand of the throne. But there is a reality that we are awaiting the coming of King Jesus a second time. And the second coming will not be like the first. At this second coming, King Jesus will not come as a humble baby, but rather as the enthroned king coming with a scepter of iron, ready to bring him with him all those who have submitted to his supreme sovereignty and to judge and condemn those who continue to seek and pursue the idol of self-sovereignty. It's this truth of the second coming and the, the manner in which the Lord's anointed will return that brings us to the final act of our divine drama. In this final act, we, we find ourselves looking in at King David, sitting at his desk, quill in hand, writing an urgent plea to the kings and rulers of the world. Verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, therefore, this could also be read as, so now, or because of everything I have just said, because the fight for sovereignty is in vain, because Yahweh has placed his king atop Zion, because that king has been given rule over the whole earth, and he is patiently waiting before he comes back again and judges, now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. You can hear the desperate plea of King David, can't you? The warning of the psalmist is to serve the Lord. This Lord who enthrones his supremely sovereign king with fear. Said in other translations with reverential awe. Fear paired with rejoicing. Isn't that an odd combination of words? Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. One commentator says of this text, relating to God in fear without joy is torment. But to relate to God in joy without fear is presumptuous. Makes sense though, doesn't it? Think about it. As we recount the things we've just read, the fact that we are like little Lilliputians in the face of a giant God, that he rules and reigns in perfect righteousness. That he promises to judge and condemn all of those who are against him. I begin to sense a real feeling of fear. But then when I realize how patient and good and kind and gentle this king is. How he entered human history to save his people. When I realize he came as a shepherd. And that he is patiently offering salvation to all nations and all peoples that he chose to endure the cross so that he might inherit his crown, I can't not rejoice. 
One psalmist says it like this, Psalm 103.11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. My fear comes from understanding how big God is, how holy he is, how righteous and perfect he is, and how small I am, and how unholy I am, and how unrighteous and imperfect I am, and yet it says that he loves me as I fear him, and so I rejoice. The anointed one of the Lord loves me and wants me in relationship with himself. That's unbelievable. And then the psalmist closes with this authoritative command. This is a command, an imperative. This is what we're supposed to do. Kiss the son. Said another way, pledge your allegiance to the son. In the days of the monarchy, one would pledge their allegiance and honor to a king by getting down on their knees in a position of humility and kissing the hand of the king, showing them that they were submitted under his power and that they were allegiant to him as king. And the psalmist says, kiss the son. Respond with submission and allegiance to the supremely sovereign king of the Lord. You know what this looks like? I think we have a picture of exactly what this looks like. Luke chapter 7. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Here's this prostitute who encounters King Jesus and she begins to weep because she sees how unworthy she is in his presence. She recognizes that supreme sovereignty is sitting across from her. And she does the only thing she can think to do in that moment. She humbles herself. She serves him with fear and she kisses the son. She kisses the son. She pledges her her allegiance to him. She believes what he says. She commits her life to him and she kisses the son. And listen to what Jesus says in response. He says to that room of Pharisees, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Pledge allegiance to the Son, kiss the Son. If you're here this morning, there's a reason the supremely sovereign king wants you to hear this message. I believe he wants us to kiss his son, to be allegiant to him, 
to stop fooling ourselves and thinking that, that we can overcome his sovereignty and, and that we make better kings of our lives. We read that we, we kiss the son lest he be angry with us and perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. There will come a day when the patience of the Lord runs out. But as of right now, in this moment, here this morning, God is revealing to us his word, and it says to submit to him and kiss the son. And then the psalmist writes these final words. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Notice there's not refuge from him. It does not say blessed are all who find refuge from him, but rather blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's no refuge outside of the sun. Refuge and salvation and rescue is found only in him. Have you taken refuge in the Lord. I have to ask this morning, have you kissed the sun? You have to answer that this morning. Don't let another day go by. Don't let a, another moment go by without humbling yourself under the mighty hand of the Lord. And I'm not just talking about salvation. I'm not just talking about entering into the kingdom for the first time. Are we kissing the sun daily? Are we submitting ourselves to his kingship? Have we kissed the sun this morning? Do not pass up this opportunity to bow in humility to the supremely sovereign king. I want to suggest that continually awakening the awe of Jesus' supreme sovereignty, as we've done this morning, has to be an intentional purposeful part of our life. Therefore, I'm going to suggest three things this morning that I want us to, to actively apply to our lives from today's sermon. So to help us awaken the awe of Jesus' supreme sovereignty, there's something I think we need to reject. There's something I think we need to receive. And then there's a way I think we need to respond. So we're going to look at something we need to reject something we need to receive, and then how we might respond. This morning, we need to reject the notion that we are at all autonomous and can pursue the idol of self-sovereignty. We need to reject this idea that we can, can live in the kingdom with one foot and yet not be fully submitted to the king in the other. We've got to reject this idea that we can't be fully allegiant, submitted, and sold out for the king. I've heard if Jesus isn't Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. We have to reject this idea that we, we cannot be fully submitted. Now, this goes for those who have never submitted to themselves under the mighty hand of God, but also for those who are Christ followers. We have to reject the temptation to slip back into thinking that we're our own. We have to recognize that there are deep recesses of our hearts that continue to seek self-sovereignty. That there might be parts of our life that we've never handed over to the king to rule and reign over. 
And I want to say we have to reject that way of thinking. Secondly, we have to receive the promise that refuge is found in Jesus alone. At this moment, in this place, Jesus is still offering refuge for all who put their trust in him. The word says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Receive the forgiveness of the King. Receive the blessing of living in his kingdom and receive the promise of eternal life with him. And then lastly, we need to to respond this morning. We need to respond by kissing the Son. We need to respond by pledging our allegiance to him over everything else. Serve him. Fear him. Honor him. Be an ambassador of the king. That means go outside the kingdom and tell everyone you meet how great and kind and gentle and loving and gracious and merciful and just your king is. Love the king and kingdom. But look for ways to be meaningfully outside that kingdom. Living among those outside. Loving those outside. Inviting them in. And calling them to reverential awe of your king. See, whether it's through sport or business or homemaking or anything else, As ambassadors of the king, we have the privilege and the responsibility to proclaim the gospel and make disciple makers for the glory of the king. Stand in awe of the loving kindness of the supremely sovereign king today. Let me pray. Father, I can't read this text and not be reminded of your goodness, your kindness, your patience, and yet at the same time, your spirit convicts me, and I have to run to you, and I have to confess my sin, and I have to repent and turn from it that I do get caught up in this idea that I can somehow kind of live in the kingdom, kind of submit myself to you, and yet really recognize there's parts of the world that are attractive and that fight for my allegiance. And God, I, I believe I'm probably not alone in that this morning. And so, Father, would you be gracious to us? Would you be merciful to us? God, would you have your spirit communicate with us and show us those areas that that are not submitted to you as king? God, I thank you that, that the way you move and the way you work would be to invite us into this safe place on a Sunday morning to hear your glorious word proclaimed and your spirit would gently 
just nudge us and say, you haven't given me that part of your life. You're still fighting for sovereignty or autonomy in that area. And so, God, I pray that our our hearts would be open to that. God, I pray that as we close in worship this morning, your spirit would move and that that we would have a a sweet time of, of repentance and celebration that you are indeed a sovereign king, that there is nothing outside of your control or your power or your love, and that brings us such hope. God, I, I praise you for Redemption Bible Church. I thank you for this congregation of saints. I thank you for their leadership. God, I thank you for their children. I thank you for their witness in this community. Would you bless this body of believers? God, would, would you stir up in them a boldness and a courage to be ambassadors for your kingdom in this community that there might be revival that there might be a, a bursting at the seams of this fellowship, that they would have to pray what to do next because people are coming to a reverential awe of your king. We thank you. We praise you. Lord, what we recognize from this word is that we love you because you first loved us and that we worship you because you alone are worthy to be worshipped. So God, transform us. Please, do not let us leave here the same as when we came. For your glory and for our holiness and joy, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, King. Amen. <sighs>